have had a parable on my heart for a little over a week now. Um, I don't know that I've ever preached on it before, which is really kind of a shame. I'm sure I've mentioned it in passing over the years. It's fairly short. It's found in the book of Luke, where we find many of Christ's parables. Luke chapter 18, if you'd like to turn there. And if you're thumbing through, you see that there's a lot of parables in this section. Parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the prodigal son, which I've preached on many times. Rich man and Lazarus and the unworthy servant. The account of where he cleanses the lepers. Persistent widow and so on and so forth. And so we know that he was trying to drive a point home to those who are listening to him. And as I've said before, it's really important we understand who Jesus Christ is specifically addressing. And if we back up and read, uh, it's usually pretty obvious. And in this case, it seems to be very clear as well. So read along with me, if you will, Luke 18, beginning with verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And here we see a very clear example given of two extremes. One is appropriate, the other is entirely inappropriate. And in this short parable, we really see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just in case we don't know, the, the Pharisees were a small group of Jewish men who were primarily leaders within their community, whether they be business owners or leaders within uh, the temple. And they took special pride in being very pious, making sure to follow all of the laws. So not only did they take pride in following all 614 laws that we clearly see within the Old Testament, but they also followed the Jewish tradition that was handed down. And so they were very, very careful. They were the ones who would count the number of steps that they took on a Sabbath day to make sure they were not working. They were the ones who made sure that they gave even 10% of the small herbs that they had grown and produced within their homes to make sure they were following the law. They were very eager to do exactly as the law told them to do. And they were well thought of by the other Jews who looked to them for advice and guidance. We also know that they were very antagonistic toward Jesus Christ. They didn't believe who he proclaimed to be. And they criticized him constantly for violating the rules that they thought were so important. Such as when he was walking one day with his disciples and simply on the Sabbath he took the heads of grain in his hand and 
rub them together to produce the seeds which he could eat. And they said, that's working on the Sabbath. And so we see how important it was for them to follow the rules precisely. Now, the other man who's mentioned here, perhaps your uh, translation says a publican, which is a tax collector. Now, these were really seen as the lowest of the low in this society. Now, we may not be very fond of the tax collectors in our day today, but this was far and above even worse. You see, the Romans were ruling uh, the Jewish people by force, and they were collecting taxes by force. And what they realized is that they were not going to be able to truly tax everyone because they didn't know the culture, they didn't know the people, they didn't know the system. And so they would bribe Jewish people to go around and tax their fellow Jewish individuals and then give that to the Roman emperor. And part of the bribe for doing that was allowing them to overtax their fellow Jews. And so they were dishonest about how much they taxed people. They kept lots of the money. We see that Matthew, the apostle, was a tax collector. We see uh, that many in the scriptures were tax collectors. And Jesus never shied away from going to those people and uh, doing things with them. And that's part of what made the Pharisees so angry because Jesus would sit down and have dinner with someone who was a tax collector who was, you could say, ripping off the other Jews and being just completely dishonest in how they collected taxes. And so you could say they were seen as a traitor, if you will. So let's look at this example a little bit closer. And I want to start with the first sentence in verse 9. And he told the parable to some, and I catch this, this is who he's addressing, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so we see Christ who is telling this to uh, the people who are listening to him, those who are trusting in themselves, in their own righteousness, who believe that they can be good enough to merit the favor of God, and those who look down on other people with contempt. And so he says, two men went up into the temple, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now let's look at the Pharisee and the tax collector and look at some of the similarities and the differences. They're both men. Both went to the temple. Now I think both went for different reasons, but both of them went to the temple. But it's very important to see the differences. It says the, the Pharisee standing by himself, or perhaps in other translations, it says, or standing prayed to himself. And the idea we see here is that he is, he is talking about himself. He is full of who he is. He is filling himself up. He is praising himself before God and condemning others who are not as quote unquote good as he is. So it stands up by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'll just stop there for a minute. Can you imagine walking into a group of people and praying, God, thank you that I'm not like everybody else? But let me ask this question. Have we never thought that when we walked into a group of people? Ooh. Now it kind of comes a little closer to home, doesn't it? But either way, whether we've thought it or actually said it, he stands and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he makes it 
really pointed. Even this tax collector. Might as well just point at the man and say, there you go, right there. I'm not like that guy. And then he continues and he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. We see this concept several times in the scripture. And if you continue reading in this chapter, we see the rich young ruler. We see that in that case, Jesus doesn't contradict what the rich young ruler says about himself. And nor in the scriptures do we see this contradicted either. So when this man says that he's a good man, that he's not an extortioner, that he's not unjust, that he's not an adulterer, that he's not like the corrupt tax collector, that he ties everything that he has and that he fasts twice a week, we can say that very likely that's all true. He wasn't really exaggerating. The problem with what he was doing was that he was looking at himself and judging himself as worthy. He wasn't necessarily saying something that was untrue. And so you can look at this and say, you can fast twice a week, and that might be a good thing. You can give tithes on everything that you have, and that might be a good thing. You can refrain from cheating people and being unjust and committing adultery and being a traitor, and those are also likely good things. That's not the point. And then he says, but the tax collector, standing afar off, likely didn't feel worthy of actually entering into the innermost parts of the temple. So he was standing afar off. He, on the other hand, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's all we know about this guy. And so looking at these, we see that the Pharisee had some problems. Likely went to the temple to show off. You ever know anybody or you yourself have ever gone to church to show off? Think carefully. Perhaps. On the other hand, the tax collector went to the temple very likely because he knew what Isaiah said, Isaiah 56 and 7, that my house is a house of prayer. And when he knew that he needed to pray, he went to the place that God has ordained for us to seek him out and to pray. This is still a place of prayer and worship, an opportunity for us to speak to God. And sometimes we need to go somewhere different than where we normally are to get right with God, to be sincerely following after him. And so we see the intent of these two men was drastically different. One came to show off. Look at how good I am. Look at me. And the other came, bowing humbly, saying to God, be merciful for me, a sinner. It's entirely two different concepts. So one came to compliment himself. The other came to seek the Lord and a request. As I've already mentioned, the Pharisee, there's nothing in his prayer but praise for himself. Whereas if you look at the prayer of the publican, while it included himself, it was the thought that he is completely and wholly unworthy. So the Pharisee trusted that he was righteous, boasted that he was righteous, and the Pharisee, and I'm sorry, the tax collector was full of humility and humiliation. Wouldn't even look up to the temple, wouldn't even look up to God, but instead beat in his chest saying, I know that I'm a sinner, I am unworthy. Whereas the righteous 
or I'm sorry, the Pharisee flaunted his righteousness. And not only that, he despised and criticized others. And so a couple things I want to note that are absent, that are very important when we look at this. This is, I believe, a picture of salvation. Because we see at the end, one of them is justified. And we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But what we see here are men who are approaching the very Lord God. And when we look at the Pharisee, we notice there is no confession. There's no acknowledgement that there is sin in his life. And while I just got done saying it's very likely these things were true, I trust the fact that he says he fasted twice a week and he gave a tithe. Does this mean that he was without sin? Absolutely not. And so we must remember that when we come before an almighty God, that we are not perfect, that we cannot be perfect, and we ought to confess our faults before an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And that's exactly what the tax collector did. You'll also notice the Pharisee, not only did he not seek uh, to confess, he did not seek forgiveness for any of the sins that he might have done. Whereas the tax collector, that's all he was seeking, was mercy on his very life. We also see that there was no thanksgiving on behalf of the Pharisee. He wasn't praising the Lord in that way. It was entirely self-driven and self-focused. Whereas the tax collector was overcome with sorrow and guilt. It says he beat upon his chest with remorse. You ever been so upset you've done that? To some degree, it's a slight cultural thing. We don't do it a whole lot anymore, but you ever been so upset you've just pounded your fist on something? You ever been so angry you've hit something, hopefully not somebody else? You ever been so upset you've hit yourself? pounded your knee, stomped your foot. It's this idea. This idea that he is so low before God, that he is realizing his state before him, that all he has left to do, he can't even look up to heaven, but simply he beats on his chest and he says, I am a sinner, have mercy on me. 2 Samuel 24 and 10 talks about David after he had committed a sin. He, he knew better. The Lord had told him, do not count the people. We could get into why, but we don't have time today. And he went ahead and he counted all the people. And it says this in that verse, but David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. This idea that our heart will condemn us when we do wrong things before the Lord. Call it a conscience, if you will. Those who don't even know the Lord have this seated inside of them. We have this inner uh, conscience that tells us when we're doing something wrong. And again, I'll just ask by way of personal example, how many of you have said something or done something and just as David experienced, as soon as you did it, your heart struck you and you knew, oh, that was wrong. I hope all of us. I hope every single person here knows what I'm talking about. Not because I hope that you've been a sinner, but because I know you have been a sinner, as just as I. And I know that there are times in our lives when God will strike our heart with the truth of what we've done. And we just stand before an almighty God, not looking up to him, not proud of ourselves, but humbly going, oh. 
We also see in other places this idea that we would be so disgraced by our actions or by our thoughts that we would pound our side or our thigh. Jeremiah 24, beginning in verse 19, says this, For after I turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh, I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. And so when your heart is struck, when you are uh, dealing with the sin that is in your life, when you truly come before the Lord, repentant of it, after you have been instructed or learned that you were wrong, Jeremiah says, I struck my thigh, I was ashamed, I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Brothers and sisters, let me try and make this very plain and very real. If at any point in your life you are ever going to know the Lord personally, you are going to receive his forgiveness and his salvation, it must come in a similar fashion. I'm not saying you have to go up to a temple. I'm not saying you have to physically bow. I'm not saying you have to physically beat your chest with anguish. But this idea, this concept that you come before an almighty, holy God, understanding the sin that you've done, and your only prayer is for mercy. Your sincere desire is for mercy. Not that you are better than others. Not that you condemn others but that you come with nothing else in your heart, in your mind, or in your spirit other than God have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the point when you can be justified. Scripture tells us, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. We cannot be righteous or good enough to save ourselves. It's impossible. And this tax collector was very likely a bad man. If we're going to assume that the other guy was quote-unquote good, we'll just assume that this guy was as bad as he probably was, cheating all kinds of people out of their living, stealing from widows and all types of horrific things. Yet look who was justified. It wasn't the one who was living the good life. It was the one who came before God, humbly seeking after him, begging for mercy. It was the attitude. Scriptures tell us in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we come to God, empty, impoverished, desperate, bankrupt, begging for forgiveness. This is when God comes and meets us. This is how the tax collector came. And his prayer was very simple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I wasn't sure where to go with this, but I want to spend just a minute and talk about this concept. Those of us who are saved, who know the Lord, want very badly for those who are not to know the Lord. When you have the peace that passes all understanding, you desire for others to have that in your lives, do you not? 
It's why we do the things that we do. It's why we bring our friends and our children to church. It's why we come to Vacation Bible School to teach the truth. It's why we stand for the things that we do when we're in the community. It's the reason we're left here is to praise God and tell others about Him. But all too often, I'm afraid it is too popular for us to skip over the tax collector's prayer. We forget very easily that we have to come before God, burdened by our sin and seeking nothing but mercy, not bringing our own righteousness to God and setting it before him and saying, look at how good I've been. But to come before God, recognizing what horrible, wretched, disgusting people that we actually are, knowing full well there is nothing that I can do out of my own goodness to inherit the kingdom of God, but only seeking after Him. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've probably noticed over the years I'm not a huge fan of what's commonly called a, a sinner's prayer. About 15 or 20 words that unfortunately many use to fool a lot of people, I think. This prayer was really short. And I could have you repeat it. I could have everybody raise your hand and say, repeat this. But if you don't mean it from your heart, you just said a bunch of words. And if you don't know what it's like to be convicted of your sins, to realize your state before God, to feel as this man did, to not even know you're not even worthy to look up to God, to either physically or metaphorically beat your thigh or your chest saying, God, I am unworthy. The only way that I can do anything is if you are merciful to me, then you will not be justified. Now that word justification means a pronouncement that something is righteous or clean. And we mean it in this case because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't because he was good. It wasn't even because he realized, I've been a horrible tax collector. I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to give my money back. No, it meant more than that. It meant that he looked to God as his only source of salvation. Too many times and too many people realize that they're sinners, realize that they're doing things they ought not to do, and they decide to try and be a better, quote-unquote, good person, somehow thinking that doing that will earn them their way into heaven. But it doesn't work that way. The only thing that earns you into heaven the only thing that allows you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ is when you come to him cognizant, understanding your sins, burdened by them, and pleading to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. Doesn't matter what you've said. Doesn't matter where you're at. He wasn't even in the temple proper, probably. I got saved just outside of a church building. Oh, they gave a call. Everybody came up front. I stood there. You see, I was hurt in my heart because I knew. I knew something wasn't right. Went through the whole service. 
preacher down front. There was four or five hundred people there, I guess. I don't know how many went down front and prayed. I didn't. I stood there, defiant, just like the Pharisee, thinking whether I admitted it to myself, I'm a good guy. I go to church all the time. I even had keys to the church. I worked at the church. I grew up there. I'd done all of this. I knew everything I had to know. And then they dismissed. And I got about 20 yards. And something in my life, I switched from the Pharisee to the tax collector. Because my heart revealed to me, it struck me with the fact that I didn't love God. I knew all the right answers. I did all the right things. In fact, I was really, quote unquote, a good boy. I did what I was supposed to. But I didn't love God. And when I finally realized that, I physically fell to my knees and began to weep and pray and beg for forgiveness. I even remember thinking, why am I asking for forgiveness? I've already been forgiven. But the reality was this. I'd only said things before. I didn't truly believe it. If you want to know the Lord, if you want to be justified, forgiven for your sins, not because of what you've done, but because of what God does for you, then you have to seek the Lord in the same way. If you trust on your own goodness, you're going to come short. If you trust on making a decision, I'm going to stop committing this sin, I'm going to start doing the right thing and the good thing, you're going to come short because you're still depending on yourself. If you look around at others and think and despise them because they're worse, and trust me, if you are here today, there are a lot of other people who are a lot worse than you are. You don't look very far for that. But if somehow you think because you're here that you're better and therefore you're okay, you are sorely mistaken as this Pharisee was because you are trusting in your own self and your own goodness for salvation. And when you go down to your house, you will not be justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself be exalted. Let me just read the next few verses because it really brings us together. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. And Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, it's the same idea. Children, when they come to see a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, an uncle, an aunt, a close friend, they just believe that you love them. They just come with open arms. We must have similar faith in Jesus Christ. We must come to him as little children, understanding our state and flying wide open to him, the only one who can save us, the only reason that we're here, the only reason that we're alive is to know him. 
we must be humble. Not holding ourselves higher, not having any type of pretext, not thinking you can do it on your own. Because the reality is you can't. If the Pharisee, who dedicated his entire life to doing the right thing, still misses it, what do you think will happen to you? Sincerely ask yourself that question. This man, as part of the Pharisees, would only take so many steps on a Sunday just so he wouldn't violate the law, just so he could go to heaven. Have you ever done anything like that for maybe more than a day? I highly doubt it. And if he wasn't justified, no matter what you think you're doing that's good, you will not be either. On the other hand, one of the more sinful men and sinful professions who had a very simple request because he knew his state, he came in a humble spirit and posture before the Lord. He said, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. I can't tell you what to say when you go to the Lord. I can't tell you what to do. All I can do is direct you to the idea that you must go humbly to him. I think in our society, we hold ourselves very highly. It's a real problem that we have, isn't it? Pride. I mean, I struggle with it too, so don't don't think that this isn't an issue that we all struggle with. We all want to make ourselves out better than we are, but the reality is none of us are worthy except for the Lamb, the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world. And so as we move into a close, as we move into our vacation Bible school, let us remember who God is. Let us teach and share with passion who God is. Let us be willing to allow God to use us to reveal to the hearts of young children the truth that they are not worthy that they are not good people, that the only way out is to go before the Lord, repentive, begging for mercy, seeking God with all that you have, leading them to this path. Not that you can force anyone to do this, but showing them by example, showing them through the scriptures, telling them with your testimony what is the most important thing, to seek God for mercy, Because there's nothing good inside of me. And then show them the love that God replaces that emptiness with. Because I think all of us know, no matter how long you've been living, no matter how long you've chased after your own pride and your own ego, no matter how much better you actually may be than your neighbors, that eventually just leaves you hollow and empty inside. And we know there's nothing to it. And it gets in the way of salvation. Because when we go to the throne room of God, we take that and we think, well, somehow I'm going to take myself and give it to God. He already owns you. He wants your obedience. 
He wants your confession. He wants your faith. Not anything that you can physically do. So let's have a time, an opportunity for you to consider your state. For you to think through and wonder, am I presenting myself to God as a sacrifice? Or do I realize that there is no virtue in me, there is no value in me? The only thing I can do is to come before him and say, God, have mercy on me. Unconditional favor, mercy. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, but because he will give it to those who humble themselves to him.